Section 11 of the Platinum Story and Others. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Yoganand. The Platinum Story and Others by H. G. Wells. The Purple Pileus. Mr. Coombs was sick of life. He walked away from his unhappy home and sick not only of his own existence but of everybody else's, turned aside down Gaswork Lane to avoid the town and crossing the wooden bridge that goes over the canal to Starling's cottages, was presently alone in the damp pine woods and out of sight and sound of human habitation. He would stand it no longer. Repeated aloud with blasphemies unusual to him that he would stand it no longer. He was a pale-faced little man with dark eyes and a fine and very black moustache. He had a very stiff, upright collar, slightly frayed, that gave him an illusory double chin, and his overcoat, albeit shabby, was trimmed with astrakhan. His gloves were a bright brown with black stripes over the knuckles and split at the finger ends. His appearance, his wife had once sent in the dear dead days beyond recall, before he married her, that is, was military. But now... She called him, it seems a dreadful thing to tell of between husband and wife, but she called him a little grub. It wasn't the only thing she had called him either. The row had arisen about the beastly Jenny again. Jenny was his wife's friend and by no invitation of Mr. Coombs, she came in every blessed Sunday to dinner and made a shindy all the afternoon. She was a big, noisy girl with a taste for loud colours and strident laugh. And this Sunday, she had outdone all her previous intrusions by bringing in a fellow with her, a chap as showy as herself. And Mr. Coombs, in his starchy, clean collar and his Sunday frock coat, had sat dumb and wrathful at his own table, while his wife and a guest talked foolishly and undesirably and laughed aloud. Well, he stood that, and after dinner, which as usual was late, what must Miss Jenny do but go to the piano and play banjo tunes for all the world as if it were a weekday? Flesh and blood could not endure such goings on. They would hear next door. They would hear in the road. It was a public announcement of their disrepute. He had to speak. He had felt himself go pale and a kind of rigor had affected his respiration as he delivered himself. He had been sitting on one of the chairs by the window. The new guest had taken possession of the armchair. He turned his head. Sunday. He said over the collar, in the voice of one who wants, Sunday, what people call a nasty tone it was. Jenny had kept on playing, but his wife, who was looking through some music that was piled on the top of the piano, had stared at him. What's wrong now, she said. Can't people enjoy themselves? I don't mind rational enjoyment at all, said Little Coombs. But I ain't going to have weekday tunes playing on a Sunday in this house. What's wrong with me playing now, said Jenny, stopping and twirling round on the music stool with the monstrous rustle of the flounces. Coombs saw it was going to be a row and opened too vigorously, as is common with your timid, nervous men all the world over. Steady on with that music stool, said he. It ain't made for heavy weights. Never you mind about weights, said Jenny, incensed. What was you saying behind me back about me playing? Surely you don't hold with not having a bit of music on a Sunday, Mr. Coombs, said the new guest, leaning back in the armchair, blowing a cloud of cigarette smoke and smiling in a kind of pitying way, and simultaneously 
His wife said something to Jenny about never mind him you go on Jenny I do said Mr Coombs addressing the new guest May I ask why said the new guest evidently enjoying both a cigarette and the prospect of an argument He was by the by a lank young man very stylishly dressed in bright drab with a white cravat and a pearl and silver pin It had been better taste to come in a black coat Mr Coombs thought Because began Mr Coombs It don't suit me I'm a businessman. I have to study my connection. Rational enjoyment, his connection," said Mrs. Coombs scornfully. "That's what he's always a saying. We got to do this, and we got to do that. If you don't mean to study my connection," said Mr. Coombs, "what did you marry me for?" "I wonder," said Jenny, and turned back to the piano. "I never saw such a man as you," said Mrs. Coombs. "You've altered all round since we were married." before then jenny began at the tum 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 again look here said mr coombs driven at last to revolt standing up and raising his voice i tell you i won't have that the frock coat heaved with his indignation no violence now said the long young man in drab sitting up who the jews are you said mr coombs fiercely whereupon they all began talking at once the new guest said he was jenny's intended and meant to protect her and mr coombs said he was welcome to do so anywhere but in his mr coombs house and mrs coombs said he ought to be ashamed of insulting his guest and as i've already mentioned that he was getting a regular little grub and the end was that mr coombs ordered his visitors out of the house and they wouldn't go and so he said he would go himself with his face burning and tears of excitement in his eyes he went into the passage and as he struggled with his overcoat his frock coat sleeves got concertinate up his arm and gave a brush at the silk cat jenny began again at the piano and strummed him insultingly out of the house tum 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 he slammed the shop door so that the house quivered that briefly was the immediate making of his mood you will perhaps begin to understand his disgust with existence as he walked along the muddy path under the firs it was late october and the ditches and heaps of fir needles were gorgeous with clumps of fungi He recapitulated the melancholy history of his marriage. It was brief and commonplace enough. He now perceived with sufficient clearness that his wife had married him out of a natural curiosity in order to escape from her worrying, laborious and uncertain life in the workroom. And like the majority of her class, she was far too stupid to realize that it was a duty to cooperate with him in his business. She was greedy of enjoyment, loquacious and socially minded and evidently disappointed to find the restraints of poverty still hanging about her. His worries exasperated her, and the slightest attempt to control the proceedings resulted in a charge of crumbling. Why couldn't he be nice, as he used to be? And Coombs was such a harmless little man too, nourished mentally on self-help, and with a meager ambition of self-denial and competition that was to end in a sufficiency. Then Jenny came in as a female Mephistopheles, a gabbling chronicler of fellers, and was always wanting his wife to go to the theatres and all that. And in addition. were aunts of his wife and cousins male and female to eat up capital insult him personally upset business arrangements annoy good customers and generally blight his life it was not the first occasion by many that mr coombs had fled his home in wrath and indignation and something like fear vowing furiously and even aloud that he wouldn't stand it and so frothing away his energy along the line of least resistance but never before had he been quite so sick of life as on this particular sunday afternoon the sunday dinner may have had its share in his despair and the greyness of the sky perhaps too 
He was beginning to realize his unendurable frustration as a businessman as a consequence of this marriage. Presently bankruptcy, and after that, perhaps she might have reason to repent when it was too late. And destiny, as I've already intimated, had planted the path through the wood with evil-smelling fungi, thickly and variously planted it, not only on the right side, but on the left. A small shopman is in such a melancholy position if his wife turns out a disloyal partner. His capital is all tied up in his business, and to leave her means to join the unemployed in some strange part of the earth. The luxuries of divorce are beyond him altogether. So that the good old tradition of marriage for better words holds inexorably for him and things work up to tragic culminations. Bricklayers kick their wives to death and the dukes betray theirs. But it is among the small clerks and shopkeepers nowadays that it comes most often to a cutting of throats. Under the circumstances, it is not so very remarkable and you must take it as charitably as you can that the mind of Mr. Coombs ran for a while on some such glorious close to his disappointed hopes and that he thought of razors, pistols, bread knives and touching letters to the coroner denouncing his enemies by name and praying piously for forgiveness. After time, his fierceness gave way to melancholia. He had been married in his very overcoat, his first and only frock coat that was buttoned up beneath it. He began to recall their courting along this very walk, his years of penurious saving to get capital and the bright hopefulness of his marrying days. For it all to work out like this. Was there no sympathetic ruler anywhere in the world? He reverted to death as a topic. He thought of the canal he had just crossed and doubted whether he shouldn't stand with his head out even in the middle and it was while drowning was in his mind that the purple pileus caught his eye. He looked at it mechanically for a moment and stopped and stooped toward it to pick it up under the impression that it was some such small leather object as a purse. Then he saw that it was the purple top of a fungus a peculiarly poisonous-looking purple, slimy, shiny, and emitting a sour odor. He hesitated with his hand an inch or so from it, and thought of poison crossed his mind. With that, he picked the thing and stood up again with it in his hand. The odor was certainly strong, acrid, but by no means disgusting. He broke off a piece, and the fresh surface was a creamy white that changed like magic in the space of ten seconds to yellowish-green color. It was even an inviting-looking change. He broke off two other pieces to see it repeated. They were wonderful things these fungi thought, Mr. Combs, and all of them the deadliest poisons as his father had often told him. Deadly poisons. There is no time like the present for a rash resolve. Why not here and now, thought Mr. Combs. He tasted a little piece, a very little piece indeed, a mere crumb. It was so pungent he almost spat it out again, then merely hot and full-flavoured kind of German mustard with a touch of horseradish, and, well, mushroom. He swallowed it in the excitement of the moment. Did he like it or did he not? His mind was curiously careless. He would try another bit. It really wasn't bad. It was good. He forgot his troubles in the interest of the immediate moment. Playing with death it was. He took another bite and then deliberately finished a mouthful. A curious tingling sensation began in his fingertips and toes. His pulse began to move faster. The blood in his ears sounded like a mill race. Try a bit more, said Mr. Combs. He turned and looked about him and found his feet unsteady. He saw and struggled towards a little patch of purple and a dozen yards away. It's all good stuff, said Mr. Combs. E, Lomo E. He pitched forward and fell on his face, his hands outstretched towards his cluster of pile. But he did not eat any more of them. He forgot forthwith. 
He rolled over and sat up with a look of astonishment on his face. His carefully brushed silk hat had rolled away towards the ditch. He pressed his hand on his brow. Something had happened, but he could not rightly determine what it was. Anyhow, he was no longer dull. He felt bright, cheerful, and his throat was afire. He laughed in the sudden gaiety of his heart. Had he been dull? He did not know. But at any rate, he would be dull no longer. He got up and stood unsteadily, regarding the universe with an agreeable smile. He began to remember. He could not remember very well because of a steam roundabout that was beginning in his head. And he knew he had been disagreeable at home just because they wanted to be happy. They were quite right. Life should be as gay as possible. He would go home and make it up and reassure them. And why not take some of this delightful toadstool with him for them to eat? A hatful, no less. Some of those red ones with white spots as well and a few yellow. He had been a dull dog, an enemy to merriment. He would make up for it. It would be gay to turn his coat sleeves inside out and stick some yellow goats into his waistcoat pockets. Then home, singing for a jolly evening. After the departure of Mr. Combs, Jenny discontinued playing and turned around on the music stool again. What a fuss about nothing, said Jenny. You see, Mr. Clarence, what I have got to put up with, said Mrs. Combs. He's a bit hasty, said Mr. Clarence judicially. I ain't got the slightest sense of a position, said Mrs. Coombs. That's what I complain of. He cares for nothing but his old shop. And if I have a bit of company, or buy anything to keep myself decent, or get any little thing I want out of the housekeeping money, there is disagreeables. Economy, he says. Struggle for life and all that. Lies awake of nights about it, worrying how he can screw me out of a shilling. He wanted us to eat dorset butter once. If once I was to give in to him, there... Of course, said Jenny. If a man values a woman, said Mr. Clarence, lounging back in the armchair, he must be prepared to make sacrifices for her. For my own part, said Mr. Clarence, with his eye on Jenny, I shouldn't think of marrying till I was in a position to do the thing in style. It's downright selfishness. A man ought to go through the rough and tumble by himself and not drag her. I don't agree altogether with that, said Jenny. I don't see why a man shouldn't have a woman's help, provided he doesn't treat her meanly. You know, it is meanness. You wouldn't believe, said Mrs. Combs. But I was a fool to have it. Might have known. If it hadn't been for my father, we shouldn't have had not a carriage to a wedding. Lord, he didn't stick out at that, said Mr. Clarence, quite shocked. Said he wanted the money for his stock or some such rubbish. Why, he wouldn't have a woman in to help me once a week if it wasn't for my standing of plucky. And the fusses he makes about money comes to me, well, pretty near crying, the cheats of paper and figures. If only we can tide over this year, he says. The business is bound to go. If only we can tide over this year, I say. Then it'll be, if only we can tide over next year. I know you, I says. And you don't catch me screwing myself lean and ugly. Why didn't you marry a slavey, I says, if you wanted one, instead of a respectable girl, I says. So, Mrs. Coombs, but we will not follow this unedifying conversation further. Suffice it that Mr. Combs was very satisfactorily disposed of and they had a snug little time round the fire. Then Mrs. Combs went to get the tea and Jenny sat coquettishly on the arm of Mr. Clarence's chair until the tea things clattered outside. What was that I heard? asked Mrs. Combs playfully as she entered and there was badinage about kissing. They were just sitting down to the little circular table when the first intimation of Mr. Combs' return was heard. This was a fumbling at the latch of the front door. Yes, my lord, said Mrs. Coombs. 
went out like a lion and comes back like a lamb and lay. Something fell over in the shop. A chair, it sounded like. Then there was a sound as of some complicated step exercise in the passage. Then the door opened and Coombs appeared. But it was Coombs transfigured. The immaculate collar had been torn carelessly from his throat. His carefully brushed silk hat, half full of crusher fungi, was under one arm. His coat was inside out and his waistcoat adorned with bunches of yellow-blossomed furs. These little eccentricities of Sunday costume, however, were quite overshadowed by the change in his face. It was livid white, his eyes were unnaturally large and bright, and his pale blue lips were drawn back in a cheerless grin. Merry, he said. He had stopped dancing to open the door. Rational enjoyment. Dance. He made three fantastic steps into the room and stood bowing. Jim! shrieked Mrs. Coombs, and Mr. Clarence sat petrified with a dropping lower jaw. Tea, said Mr. Coombs. Jolting tea. Toast tool stool. Brosha. He's drunk, said Jenny in a weak voice. Never before had she seen this intense pallor in a drunken man or such shining dilated eyes. Mr. Combs held out a handful of scarlet agaric to Mr. Clarence. Jolly stops, said Tassam. At that moment he was genial. Then, at the sight of the startled faces, he changed with a swift transition of insanity into overbearing fury, and it seemed as if he had suddenly recalled the quarrel of his departure. In such a huge voice as Mrs. Combs had never heard before, he shouted, my house! I am master here. Eat what I give you. He bawled this, as it seemed, without an effort, without a violent gesture, standing there as motionless as one who whispers, holding out a handful of fungus. Clarence approved himself a coward. He could not meet the mad fury in Coombe's eyes. He rose to his feet, pushing back his chair, and turned, stooping. At that, Coombe rushed at him. Jenny saw her opportunity, and with the ghost of a shriek, made for the door. Mrs. Coombs followed her. Clarence tried to dodge, overbent the tea table with a smash as Coombs clutched him by the collar and tried to thrust the fungus into his mouth. Clarence was content to leave his collar behind him and shot out into the passage with red patches of fly agaric still adherent to his face. Shut him in, cried Mrs. Coombs, and would have closed the door, but her supports deserted her. Jenny saw the shop door open and vanished thereby, locking it behind her, while Clarence went on hastily into the kitchen. Mr. Coombs came heavily against the door and Mrs. Coombs, finding the key was inside, fled upstairs and locked herself in the spare bedroom. So the new convert to Joie de Vivre emerged upon the passage, his decorations a little scattered, but the respectable hatful of fungi still under his arm. He hesitated the three ways and decided on the kitchen, whereupon Clarence, who was fumbling with the key, gave up the attempt to imprison his host and fled into the scullery, only to be captured before he could open the door into the yard. Mr. Clarence is singularly reticent of the details of what occurred. It seems that Mr. Coombe's transit irritation had vanished again and he was once more a genial playfellow. And as there were knives and meat choppers about, Clarence very generously resolved to humour him and so avoid anything tragic. It is beyond dispute that Mr. Coombe played with Mr. Clarence to his heart's content. They could not have been more playful and familiar if they had known each other for years. He insisted gaily on Clarence trying the fungi and after a friendly tussle, was smitten with the remorse of the mess he was making of his guest's face. It also appears that Clarence was dragged into the sink and his face scrubbed with blacking brush, he being still resolved to humour the lunatic at any cost, and that finally, in a somewhat dishevelled, chipped and discoloured condition, he was assisted to his coat and shown out by the back door, the shopway being barred by Jenny. Mr. Coombe's wandering thoughts then turned to Jenny. Jenny had been unable to unfasten the shop door, 
but she shot the bolts against Miss Coombs' latchkey and remained in possession of the shop for the rest of the evening. It would appear that Mr. Coombs then returned to the kitchen, still in pursuit of Gaty, and, albeit a strict good Templar, drank or spilled down the front of the first and only frock coat no less than five bottles of the stout Mrs. Coombs insisted upon having for health's sake. He made cheerful noises by breaking off the necks of the bottles with several of his wife's wedding present dinner plates, and during the earlier part of this great drunk, he sang diverse merry ballads. He cut his finger rather badly with one of the bottles, the only bloodshed in the story. And what with that, and the systematic convulsion of his inexperienced physiology by the licorice brand of Mrs. Coombs' stout, it may be the evil of the fungus poison was somewhat allied but we prefer to draw a veil over the concluding incidents of this Sunday afternoon. They ended in a cold cellar in a deep and healing sleep. An interval of five years elapsed. Again, it was a Sunday afternoon in October, and again Mr. Coombs walked through the pine wood beyond the canal. He was still the same dark-eyed, black-moustached little man that he was at the outset of the story, but his double chin was now scarcely so illusory as it had been. His overcoat was new, with a velvet lapel, and a stylish collar with turned-down corners, free of any coarse starchiness, had replaced the original all-round article. His hat was glossy, his gloves newish, though one finger had split and been carefully mended, and a casual observer would have noticed about him a certain rectitude of bearing, a certain erectness of head that marks the man who thinks well of himself. He was a master now with three assistants. Beside him walked a larger sunburnt parody of himself, his brother Tom, just back from Australia. They were recapitulating the early struggles and Mr. Coombs had just been making a financial statement. It's a very nice little business, Jim, said Brother Tom. In these days of competition, you are jolly lucky to have worked it up so. And you are jolly lucky too to have a wife who is willing to help like yours does. Between ourselves, said Mr. Coombs, it wasn't always so. It wasn't always like this. To begin with, Mrs. was a bit giddy. Girls are funny creatures. Dear me. Yes. You'd hardly think it, but she was downright extravagant and always having slaps at me. I was a bit too easy and loving and all that, and she thought the whole blessed show was run for her. Turned the house into a regular caravansary, always having her relations and girls from business in and their chaps. Comic songs a Sunday, it was going to, and driving trade away. And she was making eyes at the chaps too. I tell you, Tom, the place wasn't my own. Shouldn't have thought it. It was so. Well... I reasoned with her. I said, I ain't a duke to keep a wife like a pet animal. I married you to for help and company, I said. You gotta help and pull the business through. She wouldn't hear of it. Very well, I says. I'm a mild man till I'm roused, I says. It's getting to that. But she wouldn't hear of no warning. Well, it's a way with women. She didn't think I had it in me to be roused. Women of a sort between ourselves, Tom, don't respect a man until they are a bit afraid of him. So I just broke out to show her. In comes a girl named Jenny that used to work with her and a chap. We had a bit of a row and I came out here. It was just another day as this and I thought it all out. Then I went back and pitched into them. You did? I did. I was mad, I can tell you. I wasn't going to eat her if I could help it. So I went back and licked into this chap just to show her what I could do. He was a big chap too. Well... I chucked him and smashed things about and gave her a scaring and she ran up and locked herself into the spare room. Well, that's all. I says to her next morning, Now you know, I says, what I am like when I am roused. And I didn't have to say anything more. 
and you have been happy ever after eh so to speak there's nothing like putting your foot down with them if it hadn't been for the afternoon i should have been trampling the roads now and she'd have been grumbling at me and all the family grumbling for bringing her to poverty i know her little ways but we are all right now it's a very decent little business as you say they proceed on their way meditatively women are funny creatures said brother tom they want a firm hand says coombs what a lot of these fungses there are about here remarked brother tom presently i can't see what use they are in the world mr coombs looked i dare say they are sent for some wise purpose said mr coombs and that was as much thanks as the purple pilius ever got for maddening this absurd little man to the pitch of decisive action and so altering the whole course of his life end of section 11